you know what? We don't have anything else to talk about. And Darcy goes, what think you of books? Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing part one of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Your smile is so big today. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about this book. I mean, it's been kind of a dream to chat about it since we launched the podcast. We both love Jane Austen. And it was also so nice to revisit it this last week. It was. It was such a comfort to read it over the weekend. And it affirmed my choice in this being my desert island book, because no matter how many times I read it, I always notice something different. I always laugh at a different line. It's just such a, I don't know, it's a treasure trove. So I love every time I get to revisit it. I completely agree. And listeners, we're doing something a little different today and this month. So typically we talk about one classic and then pair that classic with some contemporary reads. Today, we're just talking about the first half of Pride and Prejudice. We're going to get really deep into that. And then in two weeks' time, we'll talk about the second half of Pride and Prejudice. And that episode is where our pairings will be. So today is all Jane Austen-y goodness. And really, I can't wait to dive in. I'm so excited. Well, let's just get started. I'm really excited to hear about your history with this book. I think that we both have very intimate knowledge of Pride and Prejudice, but from very different experiences. So when did you first read Pride and Prejudice and what's your prior experience with it like? I don't remember when I first read Pride and Prejudice because I feel like it's just always been in my (laughs) consciousness and in my knowledge. Um, Yeah, I'm sure I read it early in high school at the latest. I mean, I, yeah, I really don't, I don't remember. I don't remember either if I watched the BBC adaptation before I read the book or if I read it before I watched that. It's just, I feel like this book and this story has always been in my life. And then I have had the opportunity to study it in two different settings. So in grad school at Georgetown, I took a class called the Victorian Comedy. And this isn't Victorian, it's Regency, but it is the first book we read for that class before we read other Victorian comedies. That was an amazing class to to read it in because we really emphasized the humor and the snark and the irony. It was so much fun. And then a couple of years ago, I read it for a Jane Austen class that I took over the summer at Oxford, which was amazing. (laughs) And I'll just put out there, too, for all of our teacher listeners, there are scholarships to go to Oxford for three weeks and take literature classes through the 
English Speakers Association. We'll put a link to that, but it's an amazing experience. For this class, I read all six Jane Austen novels over the course of three weeks. We went to Bath and had tea at the pump room and talked about Jane Austen. We went to her house in Chawton and saw where she wrote many of her books. It was just the best. And then I've taught this book many times. So I taught it for six years, but in a semester-long class, which means I've taught it 12 times. So (laughs) I have poured over this book more than any other in my life, and I've never gotten tired of it. I've never, I will say teaching it can be hard. It's not something I would recommend to everyone, but I loved it. And that that's my <laughs> brief recounting of my many experiences with this book. My first experience with Pride and Prejudice, I very much remember either freshman or sophomore year of high school watching the Keira Knightley, I think 2005 film version. And then my junior year of high school, we went to go and see a stage version of Pride and Prejudice at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater. And it was beautiful. It was so well done. It was a brand new script that a couple of Milwaukee playwrights wrote and adapted for the stage. And it was very, very close to the text. And my high school theater director really loved it. And she decided that is what she wanted to do for the next year. So one summer day, the summer before my senior year of high school, I get a phone call from her and she's like, so do you want to go and learn some Regency dances? And I was like, does this mean that we're doing Pride and Prejudice this year? Um, And of course, she acted coy, but I knew it was happening. (laughs) So I went with a few of my friends and my high school theater director to, this is so funny, I wonder if they're still meeting, this Regency dance group that was basically just this group of senior citizens who were super passionate about real Regency dances. They learned them, they practiced them with their boombox, like just in a park in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh my gosh. So we join and they were so excited to get a bunch of young people invested and excited about the dances. They taught us about the history of the dances and like what the movements meant. And so we just like went and we learned a bunch of dances with them. And my high school theater director decided she could use a lot of that for the stage. So then auditions rolled around and I ended up playing Elizabeth Bennett in our high school's production of Pride and Prejudice. And it was exactly as fun as you would think. It was a blast. And so when I read Pride and Prejudice, I love the story, of course, but I can remember like where I was on stage when Elizabeth says this line and I can remember all of the blocking and everything. And so that's a really special experience too. That is so fun. And I imagine we have a lot of listeners who are a little bit jealous that you got to live out this novel. Yeah. And like truly live in it for a couple of months because as we were rehearsing and then performing, it really did feel like just living in Jane Austen's world for a while, which was so fun. And I think 
Okay, the part that's a little embarrassing, but it makes me laugh so hard thinking about it, is that we had to make the decision of were we going to go ahead and use dialect and speak in British accents, or were we just going to sound like regular American teenagers? And we all decided we were ambitious, <laughs> ambitious enough to listen to dialect CDs every day on the way to school and then practice every rehearsal. So we did use British accents. And every day on my way to school, driving in my little station wagon, I was listening to CDs that were teaching me how to pronounce vowels in the Queen's English. Um, I was in a play version. I was Susan in a play version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in high school. And we also went with the British accents, <laughs> which is so cringy. I mean, who lets teenagers make this decision? <laughs> I know it is. But I also remember going to see there was another high school that did a different version of the play. So, of course, we like went over to see it and they didn't use accents. Mm, and that you right felt out of just it. as weird. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, we were really invested in it and practiced really hard. So I don't know. I don't. I, surely it didn't sound great to anyone British if they were in the audience, but. I was very bitter in our Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe play because the Narnia inhabitants, they got to have American accents, but the four children had to be British. <laughs> Not fair. <laughs> Not fair. Did you read the book while you were preparing for the play or did you first read the whole thing afterwards? I read it probably like right before auditioning. For the play, I read the book. I was familiar, of course, with the story because I had watched the movie and seen the play and then read the book. And honestly, that was a great way to get into the text as a teenager. And so, yeah, then I read the book and then basically memorized the book because I memorized my lines and all of the cue lines around me. And also then... I think like during rehearsals and stuff is when I watched the BBC version as well. So I, it was just a completely immersive experience. Oh, that is so fun. I will not share any video, but I do have pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, put in a little plug for our Instagram here then. If you want to follow at Novel Pairings Pod, maybe we'll post a pic or two of Chelsea <laughs> as Elizabeth Bennett. <laughs> pictures are fine, but um, no British accents. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Chelsea. Well, let's dive into our discussion of this book. So as we mentioned, we are talking about the first half of the book today. We we decided <laughs> that the first half is chapters one through 34. Or if you have the book with volumes, that's through volume two, chapter 11. And this episode is going to be spoiler filled. Um, so. If you haven't read Pride and Prejudice or you don't know what happens and you don't want it spoiled for you, stop now. I have to say, I, I thought that this book was like unspoilable, but teaching it to teenagers reminded me that, you know, I mean, of course, they're much younger, but it was really fun that they didn't, they actually legitimately didn't know who was going to end up with whom, which is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> we will be spoiling that today. We know there is no way we are going to be able to cover everything we want to cover. There's no way we're going to be able to cover everything you listeners want us to cover. 
we're going to try our best and we're going to be offering some extra Pride and Prejudice content both on our Instagram page through some Instagram lives and some major deep dives on our brand new Patreon. So we'll put links to our Patreon in the show notes here and we hope you'll join us for extra content over there. Let's start at the beginning with the incredible opening scene. I mean, we can talk a little bit more about that fabulous opening sentence, but I think that the first scene is so perfect. And I know that we just talked about Pride and Prejudice as a play. And so I know my experience influences this, but I really do think there's something so theatrical about the way that Austin writes, the way she sets a scene, and especially, especially this first scene with Mrs. Bennett. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there there are like two sentences and then it's all dialogue until the very end of this chapter. So absolutely. I mean, her her stories are so built around so much plot happens in conversation, so much revelation about character. So yes, it is. You're so right. It's extremely theatrical. It just leaps off the page. So of course, the first line that we're talking about is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And I love that first line, but I think that the next little bit goes so perfectly with it. Austin says, however little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. (laughs) It's so perfect. It's hilarious. It puts you right in the mind of all of these mothers who are trying to get their daughters married off. And in true Jane Austen brilliance, it's both ironic and introducing us to some really important themes of the book. So I mean, we we know that that first sentence is incredibly ironic because the whole book is about women trying to find husbands, not husbands <laughs> trying to find wives. And But that second sentence where she says that the man is considered the rightful property, I mean, women were, were literally considered the property of their husbands. So to add that in there, she's making so much commentary on gender and marriage. And she's also using all of these economic words to tell us like, hey, yeah, this book is about love and it's about romance, but it's also about money. So pay attention to money in this book. Yeah. It's like romance and realty. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That could be the alternate title of Pride (laughs) and Prejudice. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice, romance and realty. Actually, um, that'd be an awfully cute retelling about a couple of realtors. All right. Tuck that one in your back pocket, (laughs) Chelsea. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. It's a little too on the nose, but we'll go with it. So then, of course, we get this wonderful pronouncement that Netherfield Park is let at last. And basically, that just means that someone has come in and they're renting it for a while. But it's this big, beautiful house. And so surely it has to be a rich gentleman because a rich woman, A, wouldn't necessarily exist and wouldn't be able to just go and move in wherever she wanted. So they know it's a single man. Actually, they don't even know that he's single necessarily, right? 
Or would they have a sense just because he's moving? I think that they might have a sense just because of how gossip works. So true. my understanding is that servants would often like come to the house to prepare it before and servants would chat to servants. And that's often how the more like gentleman class would know about what's going on. So that's like probably how Mrs. Bennett knows he's single and even knows how much money he has before she's ever met him. (laughs) So, and we open right away with Mrs. Bennett and I think that's really important because she is driving so much of the the urgency in this novel for her daughters to find husbands. And she really reflects so many mothers of that time whose, whose own livelihood and the livelihood of her daughters truly just depended on marriage. But I think it's so fun that right away in these opening scenes, we get her contrasted with Mr. Bennett and we get to see their relationship play out in such a fun way and the way that he teases her and the way that she yells at him. And they are just a delight to read. I wouldn't want them to be my parents, (laughs) but they are so fun to read about on the page. And I love how... Austin depicts that both through the dialogue and we see Mr. Bennett being evasive and really like needling his wife um, or taking what she says too literally and annoying her that way. It's a really hilarious back and forth. But I also I really like how you describe Mrs. Bennett as being a huge agent of this novel because One thing that I I think is important is, I mean, I love Mr. Bennett. I love his humor, his sarcasm. I love his relationship with Elizabeth. But he is not a great dad in terms of, like, being realistic about his daughter's plight. Like, this is a family whose house and fortune is entailed, which means that Mr. Bennett cannot leave any of the property to his daughters and can leave very little money to them. And he doesn't seem to be particularly bothered by that. He really should be the one trying to make arrangements for his daughter's marriage. And he's just kind of laughs at the whole thing. And I I really think Jane Austen is so clever in how she can make you both love a character and think he would be really fun to hang out with. And also see him as, I don't know, a huge impediment to his children. I think, so whenever I read this, I'm always aware, certainly of the text in front of me, but I always like to sort of keep in the back of my mind how different adaptations portray the characters and how that's sort of influencing as I read. And we'll definitely talk about that a little bit more as we get to talking about Mr. Darcy because I have thoughts. But in terms of Mr. Bennett, I often think he's just kind of, you know, portrayed as doting and likes to be alone with his books. And, you know, reading the text and with what you just said, I I wonder if it's, you know, just a matter of he's sort of ashamed of his family's position, and so therefore it just gets brushed under the rug. I think often 
some portrayals of this novel like to really play up his relationship with Mrs. Bennett as either being fond but teasing or being really antagonistic. And so you wonder if he has some different feelings about marriage and maybe thinks it's not such a great thing and he doesn't want his daughters wrapped up in bad marriages. And so I think that there are a lot of different ways that he can be interpreted in that. But I don't think there's a lot of interpreting you can do with Mrs. Bennett. Okay, let's talk about her. What's your interpretation of her? So I think that Jane Austen lays it out pretty clearly that Mrs. Bennett is really silly and she is so prone to flights of fancy and that she just doesn't have the best social awareness. But I also think that she really, really cares about her daughters. Otherwise, she wouldn't be so so determined to see them settled. She knows it's the only way that they can be settled into happiness. And frankly, she reaches for the stars for them. One thing I'll share from my um, Jane Austen class that I took that I really hadn't thought about, right? Because this is like comfort read. This is fun and joyful and everything works out exactly how it's supposed to. But my professor was talking about like, Let's extend this story. What happens if the girls don't get married? And I mean, (laughs) this is maybe um, not something you expected to hear on an episode about Jane Austen. But basically what she said was they have no skills. They haven't been, you know, even really raised by a governess to be able to teach or do anything like that. They can't clean. They can't cook. If they had no family to rely on and no marriages, the only form of money they would be able to make might be as prostitutes. Like, I don't even know if that was something that, of course, Jane was thinking about, but that that puts the, the circumstances in a stark <laughs> realization. Like, if these girls, I mean, even if one of them marries well, they're okay, right? Then they have a sister who will take care of them and provide for them. And so it's no wonder that Mrs. Bennett is so serious. I mean, she even tells us at the end of this chapter that her business was getting her daughters married. And it is a business. She has to, to provide for them. And that's where I get so frustrated with Mr. Bennett too. I'm just like, just do. And he does. He, right. He does go and meet Mr. Bingley. He just hides that from his wife to annoy her. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that the circumstances are are more dire than the hilarious and amazing first chapter lets us in on. But I think a Regency reader would pick up on that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that it could be really easy to write off Mrs. Bennett as simply hysterical. And if we're reading through a modern lens, we're like, well, why is she so obsessed with marrying these girls off? It's not the most important thing. But like you said, it literally was the most important thing. It was the only way that they were going to be comfortable. And as later on, when Mr. Collins comes in, I think that's when the stakes are really revealed. And when you realize that the Bennets, even though they're going to balls and they're intermingling with people in high society, you really get a sense of their place in the class system in this book and their place in the world and how precarious 
all of their situations are. You made a really good point too, just about how interesting it is that this is the first marriage we are introduced to and what marriage might look like to the daughters of this couple. And and one thing that we learn about Mr. and Mrs. Bennett is that Mrs. Bennett wasn't very well off. She was pretty and funny and extroverted, probably very much like Lydia. And Mr. Bennett married her without knowing all, not without knowing her very well. And neither of them are particularly practical. And that has led to some, you know, economic hardship and maybe some strains in this marriage. And yeah, both what they want for their daughters and what their daughters think about marriage is surely heavily influenced by seeing that relationship play out. Something that I was paying a little bit closer attention to on this read was the way that each of the daughters sort of reflect their parents and are a lot more like Mrs. Bennett than you might want them to be. But when we get so many descriptions of Elizabeth being quick to laugh and really smiley and full of mirth, I I think there is a good chunk of that is from Mrs. Bennett. And I mean, Mr. Bennett likes to, you know, tease and joke as well. But I think that that sort of lightness definitely has to come from their parents. And surely Mrs. Bennett the years of having all of these daughters and the stress and the anxiety has done a number on her nerves. Clearly, her nerves are are really a thing. <laughs> I would. I used to say this to my students. I could read the entire book aloud to, to them and comment on it. But I think that um, just the last paragraph of of this first chapter, where we really can see how gifted Jane Austen is at depicting characters in just a few quick sentences. And this is like no other author. So she writes, Mr. Bennett was so odd a mixture of quick parts, sarcastic humor, reserve, and caprice that the experience of three and 20 years had been insufficient to make his wife understand his character. (laughs) Her mind was less difficult to develop. <laughs> so, I mean, and it go, goes on. But basically, like, she describes Mr. Bennett so well, and he's such a complicated and um, quick-to-change personality that Mrs. Bennett, she's been married to him for 20-plus years. She can't understand him at all. But Mrs. Bennett <laughs> herself is quite easy to figure out. And I just love, love how well she paints characters. She just has a perfect balance of telling you who the characters are, like you said, in a couple of short sentences, and then really making them live up to that. Yes. Such a good point. Perfect combination of show and tell. She Mm -hmm. just gives you a couple of hints that make you think like, oh, I really get this person. And then you get to see the way that they interact. And I think it's, it's fun to have that experience because when you feel like you know the characters right off the bat. As you continue to read the book, I don't know, they just, it feels like you're part of that community and it puts you right in the scenes with them. And I just love that, the style of that. I think that it's so fun. I think that often when writers are told, you know, show, don't tell, 
they're not getting an example like this where it's just so perfectly balanced. All right, Chelsea. Well, we're kind of going to organize the rest of our conversation in terms of characters and in terms of character pairs because we are introduced, the first half of this book really sets up several couples. So we we talked about Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. The the first kind of romantic couple we were we're really supposed to root for, of course, is Jane and Mr. Bingley. They're the first, not first of mind, first in terms of this is the first couple that we're clearly supposed to like. So what are your what are your thoughts on Jane as a character? What are your thoughts on on Mr. Bingley and and do you ship them? Oh my gosh, of course I ship them. <laughs> they're truly just, I don't know, they're fluffy cinnamon roll characters who you can't help but like. I wouldn't want to marry Mr. Bingley personally. I think that he would be a little too hyper for me. He's a little puppy dog, which is why I named my little puppy dog Bingley. I know, I was going to say, you're the one who named your dog Bingley. Well, I mean, I think that um, I I agree Mr. Bingley isn't my romantic ideal. (laughs) Um, But I love how he, I mean, and I think Jane Austen sees this as sees this as both a flaw and a virtue that he really sees the good in everyone. And it's hard for him to see bad in people. He is a lover and a good friend. Mr. Bingley is loyal to basically anyone who is kind and amiable and good-hearted. He is very generous. A little puppy dog who just wants to follow you around and get pets from everyone. <laughs> and he, I mean, he's the friend that Darcy needs, right? Totally. Who else would be friends with Mr. Darcy other than someone like Bingley, who's just like, yeah, you can take along with me. Let's go. And Jane is exactly the same way. I mean, they are really alike. And actually, I think that we see this in some romantic pairings because I think Elizabeth and Darcy is portrayed as being very much alike, too. But Jane also just cannot see anything but good in everyone. Mm -hmm. Somewhat to a fault, especially when it comes to Mr. Bingley's sisters, where she Mm -hmm. should watch her back a little bit more. But the two of them together, I think, I mean, you have to be rooting for them in order to feel the sweeping emotions that you go through throughout this book. You have to want them to be together and you have to think, oh, they're good people who deserve good things. Because then when stuff happens and when they're ripped apart, you feel it and you're sad for them, especially sad for Jane because she seems so close to happiness and exactly what she wanted. Yeah, one of my favorite Mr. Bingley scenes is when Elizabeth comes to visit Jane. Jane is sick (laughs) and at Bingley's house, Netherfield, because Mrs. Bennett, she did some great plotting and Jane got stuck at Netherfield for quite some time. And when Elizabeth comes to visit and she looks, you know, kind of shabby, she's walked there. All Bingley can think about is how much how well he thinks of Elizabeth because she clearly loves Jane so much. And it's just so adorable that his mind always goes first to Jane. He's always, you know, thinking about her and caring for her. And it's very sweet because while he does, you know, seem to get along with with everyone and want everyone's approval, 
his preference for Jane and his fondness for her is very clear from from the outset. Yeah, and he's never shy about it. Yes, and I think that's one big difference between Jane and Bingley. Yeah, Jane is pretty shy, and it seems like Jane Austen makes it pretty clear that that's just her personality, that she's more reserved, and that's just who she is. And that proves to be a little bit of a problem. I I love in particular that it is Charlotte Lucas who says, I think she says to Lizzie, you know, your sister might want to like step it up with the flirting because uh-huh. <laughs> if he doesn't realize that she likes him, he's not going to ask her to marry him if he's not certain that she's going to say yes. And it's not super clear to everybody that she likes him that much. And Elizabeth is like, no, obviously she loves him, but she's her sister. Yeah. I, I really, I like, um, Jane Austen's blend of the romantic and the practical where to me in that conversation, I think her heart aligns with Elizabeth where she says, where she, you know, where she really means more like you shouldn't have to change yourself or, um, you know, the, the person who you love should see you for who you are and how you are with them. But the practical side of Jane Austen, I think, agrees a lot with Charlotte of like, this is this is a business. It's a game and you have to play. Yeah, you have to show up um, and make your intentions known. Otherwise, we're going to get a messy situation like we do with Jane and Bingley where they're they're torn apart. And Bingley is too easily convinced that Jane doesn't care for him the way he cares for her. And I think that's another difference between their characters and huge flaw of Mr. Bingley's. And this is discussed openly in conversations between Darcy and Bingley, that Bingley is too easily persuaded and influenced by others. Jane seems a little bit more sure of herself and what she wants throughout, even if she's not as good at expressing it. I can see that, certainly. I am still, my brain's still stuck on Charlotte a little bit because- Let's go to her. <laughs> I I really like her. Every time I read this book, I think, gosh, to have a friend like Charlotte, who wouldn't want to have a friend like her? She is, like you said, she's very practical. She offers great advice. She really wants Elizabeth to be happy. And I think that she serves a really important purpose in this novel in that she ends up voicing so much of the foreshadowing. And so the main thing, like we just talked about, being that Charlotte is sort of warning Elizabeth about Jane showing more affection. But then when Elizabeth is visiting Charlotte and Mr. Collins, Charlotte is the one who sees and she's like, I think maybe Mr. Darcy really likes my friend more than either of them is willing to let on. And she's the one who sort of hints at that to Elizabeth. And I just, I always really find myself liking Charlotte, despite her unfortunate circumstances, because she marries the abominable Mr. Collins. I really love Charlotte. And I, I, it's very funny to read this with a from a modern lens and you see 27 year old Charlotte who is a spinster (laughs) and such a burden on her family (laughs) and yeah I mean I I think that it is unfortunate in many ways that she ends up with 
Mr. Collins. She deserves better. However, I love that Charlotte is one of the only characters, one of the only women who takes matters into her own hands. She doesn't just, you know, happen to be there for Mr. Collins to propose to next. She puts herself in that position. She's saying, okay, this guy, it's obvious he wants a wife. He's just been rejected. He needs a little confidence boost. And if I can give him that, I might secure myself a husband. And that's what she does. And she, I mean, she really has agency given the limited choices she has. And so even though we want a better husband for her, I can't help but root for her because she she gets what she goes after. Yeah, and Austin makes it really clear that she is not unhappy. Right. She is happy with her circumstances. Elizabeth is the one who is like, I cannot believe that you would marry him. And when she goes to visit them, slowly it dawns on Elizabeth that Charlotte is really comfortable. She has a really sweet little house. She gets to go to a pretty grand place every now and then and have sort of the, um, I don't know, the proximity to the greatness of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And that maybe Mr. Collins isn't so terrible when he's in his own environment. He's annoying, but like they kind of leave each other alone. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that Charlotte has figured out like which room is hers and which spot is his. And she's figured out how to get distance from him. And she's perfectly content because she went after comfort and what she wanted. And that practicality, it just seems like the other characters could use a good dose of that. Absolutely. I mean, Charlotte is whip smart. She knows how to kind of control Mr. Collins. What to control is maybe too harsh of a word, but she she understands him and knows how to um, how to have a perfectly decent relationship with him. And yeah, I think that her practicality is really important. And we're going to talk about themes more in our next episode. But I think one of the questions this book is asking is, is it better to marry for love or money? And the answer is both. And so I, I think, yeah, some of the characters do need a little bit more about of that practicality and willingness to understand the circumstances that they're in. Like to us as modern readers, we would be, of course, appalled if Elizabeth accepted Mr. Collins' proposal. However, given the context, it's a really stupid decision for Elizabeth. Like, she, I mean, it's smart because they would have been miserable together, but she had a chance to inherit her family home, save her sisters, you know, secure comfort and a fortune, and she turns that down. And it's a pretty selfish decision, which once again, I'm, I, as a modern reader, am rooting for Elizabeth to make that <laughs> selfish decision. But I, I think it's important to think about it in Regency context too. It is. And I think that that is what makes the scene just following Mr. Cohn's proposal to Elizabeth with Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Bennett, that much more satisfying because we have Mrs. Bennett who is in an uproar. She is so upset at Elizabeth and she is yelling at her for being headstrong and so obstinate and she just cannot believe it. And 
in part, like you said, a Regency reader would be like, yeah, you've got a point, Mrs. Bennett. She yeah. was really stupid. But then we have Mr. Bennett, who, like you said, married for love, or at least attraction, <laughs> who just cannot stand the man. He cannot stand him. And he loves Elizabeth, and he has such a fondness for Elizabeth that he just cannot possibly imagine their personalities together. And he just, he would be beside himself to be in that home with them or to come, you know, to be visiting and see his daughter so unhappy. And I love that that tension. Yeah, because I, I do think that there, I mean, there is a right answer because everything works out exactly how it's supposed to in the end. But I, I think tension is exactly the right word. Like we are supposed to think both like, yes, these two personalities would be miserable together. And what is she going to do now? What are her sisters going to do now? Both of those things is true. I also just one thing I love about both Mr. Bennett and Elizabeth as characters is that they decide really early on whether they are going to like someone or not, and then they just really stick with it. And I love when after Mr. Bennett reads Mr. Collins's letter, he's like, oh, perfect. He's just as ridiculous as I had hoped. I will mock him forever. <laughs> and I don't know. That just rings very true. I feel like I know a lot of people like that. <laughs> a lot of people who decide what they think of someone. Yeah. I feel like that's me, to be honest. <laughs> I, I And part of it is that I, I know that I'm a very judgy person. Like, it's my, it's my inclination mm-hmm. to be sort of very critical of myself more than anyone, but also others. But then also, like, if I meet someone and I get that vibe right away, I'm like, I don't think we're going to be friends. It pretty much sticks. <laughs> How uh, Mr. Darcy is the one who says that his good opinion once lost is lost forever. And Elizabeth is like, well, that's a terrible character trait. And you're like, um, <laughs> honey, let's look in the mirror. <laughs> it's the pot calling the kettle black, but OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we talk about Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy? Yes, <laughs> we should. We we knew we were going to get there eventually. Of course. Yes, I I love both of these characters so much. I feel like they're often oversimplified. As many characters are, there's a lot more nuance to these two than just, you know, two perfect romantic leads. And that's what I I love about them. So, okay, speaking of that, where they are often more simplified than we want them to be, something that kept popping out at me on this reread is how often Darcy smiles. He smiles a lot, but in every single like film adaptation or I don't know, even I feel like retellings in book format, I feel like the Darcy character is very stoic Mm -hmm. and super broody, almost more of a Byronic hero than I think he actually is in the text. I agree. I think that he is often interpreted either as ungenerously as Byronic hero or more generously as awkward introvert. I think that's a very like right now reading of Mr. Darcy Mm -hmm. because, you know, we 
we're living through this like <laughs> personality type craze, which I also love. But I think we were like, oh, Mr. Darcy, he's socially awkward. And I think both of those readings are are there, but it is much more complicated. I mean, he he is prideful. He's not just introverted. And yes, he does prefer the company of people he already knows. He doesn't like to be in social situations. I think that's largely about his fortune. I mean, if you were a handsome man with 10,000 pounds a year, any social situation you walked into would just be, you know, women and mothers throwing themselves and their daughters at you. (laughs) And that would probably get old after a while. I think that it is in part based on those experiences that he's had walking into different social situations. And also, I think it's about what he's been taught, that he's how he's supposed to act as a man of his position. Mm -hmm. He is supposed to be superior to everyone. Surely that's what everyone expects, right? He is supposed to be sort of standoffish. He is supposed to be above them. And I think that so much of his behavior is all about like, well, this is this is the way things are and this is how I'm supposed to be as as a wealthy man. And I mean, it's very classic toxic masculinity, right? Where he's buying into these systems and he is a lot wealthier than Mr. Bingley. Mm -hmm. So we do see Bingley being, you know, more friendly and sort of um, more open with everyone, but there is a certain wealth gap there that makes things a little bit different. And we also, I mean, we get hints about Darcy's father and we get the sense that maybe, you know, maybe that's where Darcy learned some of this from about, you know, how he's supposed to act in society. Yeah, I think that's a a really important point. There's that wealth gap between the two. There's also a class divide. I mean, the fact that Mr. Bingley has to rent a country house is very important. It means that he has new money. He doesn't come from like a family seat where this house and land has been passed down from generation to generation. He's not landed gentry, unlike Mr. Darcy, who has kind of that whole history and family weight that he's carrying with him. I also think that the novel is asking the question, it it literally asks it many times, is pride different from vanity? And is pride okay when it's deserved or earned um, or justified? And I, I do think that the novel thinks that Mr. Darcy is overly prideful. However, I do think that Jane Austen suggests that like Mr. Darcy's pride is more justified than, say, the pride Mr. Collins exhibits, right? So like, a lot of the characters are prideful. His standoffishness and his criticism and his superiority are problematic, but maybe the pride in and of itself isn't exactly what we're supposed to be harsh towards Darcy about. Right away, the the way that we're introduced to him, right, is that we side with Elizabeth, where 
We meet him at a ball where he is unwilling to dance. He doesn't want to talk to people. He just seems super snobby. And then he insults her and basically says, well, she's not pretty enough to dance with when we know she's pretty. Yes. And within her earshot, which is something else that bothers me in movie versions, when like Elizabeth just happens to overhear, like Mr. Darcy makes eye contact with her. Yeah. <laughs> turns to and says, she's not pretty enough for me. Yeah. And I mean, look, it's the first time that they met. He is already witnessing her mother smushing Jane and Bingley together as much as possible. Surely he's anticipating that he is going to get the next one, right? And then we get to watch as his feelings turn. And it's really fun to see. But at the same time, we still get that feeling of like, well, but he insulted her right away. And he's kind of snobby. And do we really like him? And that's where I think the genius of Austin's voice and being able to show us from one character to the other what they're thinking and where they're looking. The scenes where he is in the same room as Elizabeth and he's just looking at her and she can tell. And she's like, what is he looking at me for? And she's trying to figure (laughs) out if it's because he's just disgusted with her or if maybe he thinks she's cute. Well, and those scenes are so interesting and her thought process there is so interesting too because she is very humble. Like she, in those scenes, doesn't even think like, oh, I hate him, so I hope he doesn't like me. She's like, there's no way this man would like deign to think of me that way, which is interesting because then she gets offended when Mr. Darcy says that to her (laughs) in his proposal, (laughs) which she's thought, I mean, To be fair, that shouldn't be said aloud. But she thought the same thing. One of my favorite scenes is at one of the balls when Mr. Darcy is talking to Mr. Lucas and Elizabeth kind of walks by. And Mr. Lucas is like trying to get out of this conversation. He's kind of bored. So he's like, oh, perfect. Elizabeth, why don't you dance with Mr. Darcy? And (laughs) Mr. Lucas takes her hand and is about to like put her hand in Mr. Darcy's and this is that indirect discourse where we go a little a little bit into Darcy's mind. He was extremely surprised, but was not unwilling to receive it. <laughs> and <laughs> then when she she draws her hand back and refuses to dance with him, Austin writes, her resistance had not injured her with the gentleman at all. And he was thinking of her with some complacency. And complacency at this time means pleasure. So her refusal to dance with him, it didn't really make him like her any less. In fact, it only increased his pleasure in her. It's just such a great scene um, that really lets us into Darcy's mind. And as you said, it gives us that feeling of, oh, I, I, he really does. He's into her, but do I want her to be into him too? I'm not sure yet. I think that my favorite scene where I think we really shift to, oh, these two should be together, is when they finally dance at the Netherfield Ball. Did you know that there's a Netherfield Ball every year for Jane Austen scholars? No, but that sounds so fun. They recreate the Netherfield Ball every year? I know. 
we, we've got to score an invite to that one year. Yeah, I know how to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I can do the dances. <laughs> I'm trained for this. <laughs> I just love that she starts talking to him. And she's like, um, you're supposed to talk to me because frankly, men didn't have to talk to women. They were women were just supposed to be the entertaining ones who mm-hmm. like flirted and did all the work. Mm-hmm. And she makes him talk, but he's smiling and they have this back and forth and it's really witty. And I think one of my favorite parts is then they sort of like their conversation drops off a little bit and the and um elizabeth is like you know what we don't have anything else to talk about and darcy goes what think you of books (laughs) because he knows she likes to read right Mm -hmm. and he's got this whole library at pemberley and he just tries to start a convert to keep the conversation going with her and she is like we surely do not read the same books and he goes well then we can compare our tastes. And he tries so hard to get into a more of a conversation to get to know her. And she really shuts him down. <laughs> I love all of the scenes where they flirt with each other or he flirts with her <laughs> by talking about books and and reading and how, mm-hmm. you know, he thinks an accomplished woman is one who improves her mind with reading. And Elizabeth is sitting there reading at the time. It's, it's so great. I think uh, just a quick Regency tidbit these dances like you said Chelsea like the talking during dances was mostly done by by women and when you agreed to dance with someone you agreed to dance with them for two dances and that was like a 20 minute chunk of time Mm -hmm. so agreeing to dance with someone is like agreeing to have a pretty lengthy conversation with them so that's I think one of the reasons why Mr. Darcy does not enjoy dancing with people he doesn't know and yeah i think that that scene shares shows so much about about their characters we've talked a lot about darcy of course because he's swoonworthy and like we just said he loves books it's very clear why readers are keen to fall in love with him right but we haven't touched as much on elizabeth i mean we've mentioned Her pride is very similar to Mr. Darcy's, that she is quick to judge, but we haven't really gotten into more of her personality and how these two fit together. One of the lines, Caroline Bingley, who we are not supposed to like, she describes Elizabeth as having an abominable sort of conceited independence. And I think she she does. I mean, I think we love her for that and we're supposed to love her for that. But Caroline's kind of observation about how Elizabeth prides herself on not necessarily being like other women and being extremely independent is true. Like we see that in her refusal of Mr. Collins. That is a sort of conceited independence. And I think that's why she's just such a fantastic, timeless heroine because her independent streak gets her into trouble. And sometimes, you know, maybe she should think of others a little bit, but she's also kind and she loves the people she loves. And she roots so hard for her sisters and her family. So I I just think she's a really complicated 
character. She has some less likable qualities, but overall, she's definitely the kind of heroine you would want to hang out with and to be on your side and on your team. She is described as mirthful. She's quick to laugh. She loves to laugh. She kind of brushes things off after they upset her, and yet she gets anxious and cares deeply about her family, especially about Jane. When Jane is sad, Elizabeth is sad. She really cares about Charlotte. She wants to make sure that she's happy, so she's willing to go and spend time with Mr. Collins just to make sure her best friend is okay. So awkward. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, she is incredibly likable. And I think that part of why she is so easy to root for is that we, we get this sense of her right away. And over the course of the novel, and this is mostly going to happen in the next half, we do get to see her quiet reflections Mm -hmm. and we get to watch her change her mind in real time. Mm -hmm. And that is always so satisfying when you are reading a book and a character is changing and you get to watch it happen, especially from inside their head. And I think with Darcy, we see it happen, but with Elizabeth, we feel it and we witness it because of the way that Austin gets us in her inner thoughts more Mm -hmm. so than Darcy. We see how Darcy changes his interactions with her and we see by his actions, like his proposing to her, how he feels. But with Elizabeth, we really get to see her reflect on things and wonder, wait, was I right about that? Yeah, surely I was. And then she moves on. And then she comes back to it later. Hmm. So I just think that's part of what makes her so satisfying as a character is just that journey that we get to witness. I also think some of my favorite moments of Elizabeth's are ones that seem counter to her character, but but also really make sense. Like she has a little bit of that practical streak in her as well. We can see that when the Bingleys and Mr. Darcy are talking about Pemberley and she's reading and she closes her book and scoots up because she wants to hear more about this big house. Or (laughs) I love the part where she thinks that maybe Colonel Fitzwilliam might be interested in marrying her and she thinks he's pretty nice, but she says, oh, he's kind of made it clear that he needs someone with more of a fortune And then there's a knock on the door and she's like, maybe it's Colonel Fitzwilliam. (laughs) And just that little bit of um, fickleness. And I think we we like to think that Elizabeth is a character who like will only marry for the purest love. But she has she she has more practicality to that, too. She wants both. And she knows who she has a pretty good sense of whose personality fits well with hers. I I think it's really revealing that she falls for Wickham. I think Jane Austen is telling us a lot about Elizabeth with, with that. She gets over it pretty quickly too. So, you know, I, I just think she, there, she's so nuanced and complex and real. And I think that's why so many readers have related to her because there's so much varied personality to connect with. 
I think often the characteristics of Elizabeth that get so highlighted are her independence and that sort of not like other girls crap. Yeah. (laughs) When really she's kind of like Lydia. She really likes a man in uniform and she thinks Wickham is so cute. Mm -hmm. And she's like. Dresses with special care mm -hmm. because she thinks she's going to see him. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, because I I don't think that Jane Austen is saying, like, Elizabeth isn't like other women, and that's why she deserves the best. Elizabeth is very much like her sisters in in a lot of important ways, and she deserves the best because everyone in Jane Austen's world deserves to be with someone who is the right companion for them and is an equal in temperament. I also think it's really telling that right off the bat, we get Jane Austen saying that Lizzie is Mr. Bennett's favorite, because yes. surely that's where so much of her independence and her confidence comes from, because he lets her get away with everything. Yes. <laughs> I Can we, I mean, we want to talk about the proposal, but I just have to throw out that one of my favorite characters in this book is Mary, who is the overlooked middle sister. And I just, I <laughs> I love the line where we are kind of getting a little bit more familiar with all five sisters and Kitty is coughing and it's driving Mrs. Bennett crazy. <laughs> and, and then there's just like a quick line about like, Mary wished to say something clever, but couldn't. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I mean... What a perfect one-sentence characterization of someone who wants to be smart and wise, but just really isn't. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I think like Elizabeth being the favorite is is hugely important. Yes. My heart always hurts for Mary when Mr. Bennett sort of drags her off the pianoforte bench at the end of the Netherfield Ball and where everyone is just... The Bennets are just being the Bennets, and Elizabeth is like, oh my gosh, my family is so embarrassing. And yet that's so relatable. Poor Mary. I <laughs> I used to um have a, an assignment where one option students could choose was to write Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. And the Mary Bennett stories were always my favorites to oh. read. Because I think a lot of teenage girls, you know, you read this and like you want to be Elizabeth and you worry that maybe you're Mary. And so they wrote some really cute stories for her. Okay, Sarah, we wanted to definitely deep dive characters here. But before we wrap up this episode, we definitely wanted to talk about the very important proposal scenes. And it's important to talk about them together because they are very specifically, I think, meant to contrast each other. For instance, first we get Mr. Collins proposing to Lizzie, and she is revolted. And he is like, you know what? I understand that ladies are supposed to sort of make a show about how they're supposed to like say no, but then they want to say yes to my proposal. And she's like, no, really. No, you don't get it. And then when Mr. Darcy proposes to her, she's like, now I understand that it's the custom that I'm supposed to (laughs) refuse you politely and make it sound, but like really, no. And I just love 
the way that these scenes run so parallel to each other. Yeah, I I also love how in Mr. Collins's proposal, he says like, and now nothing is left but for me to profess my ardent affection for you. <laughs> and then he goes on and talks about Lady Catherine. Like, he, <laughs> it's hilarious how he knows what he's supposed to do and just, just can't. And Darcy really does. He says a little bit too much. I think that what the way I interpret Mr. Darcy's proposal where he, you know, says that um, he has overcome, quote, his sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation, of the family obstacles, which judgment has always opposed to inclination. And, and Austin says he dwells on those, quote, with warmth. And I think what he's trying to say is, this is how much I love you. Mm-hmm. Like, I see these are, this is my con list. <laughs> and my pro list is I'm in love with you. And that should, over, that overcame everything. And he wants her to be flattered by that. But Elizabeth loves her family too much for that. Yeah, he just doesn't get it. And I think he probably can't understand why she loves her family so much. He's been around her family. <laughs> A lot, like quite a bit. He, especially Mrs. Bennett and her youngest sisters who are the silliest of all. And Mm -hmm. I think he's like, I really don't understand why you would want to be around them all the time. Yeah, but I can save you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Escape to Beverly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I love how he tells her he admires and loves her. And I think that's Mm -hmm. part of what he admires And, you know, we might feel a little icky about this, but I think part of what he admires is that he feels like she's overcome this family situation and is still an amazingly smart, independent, thoughtful person. And I also think it's telling that Elizabeth knows immediately that she's going to turn him down, but she is sensible enough to be flattered that, like, it means a lot to her still that a man like Mr. Darcy fell for her. Yeah, definitely. I also love, I mean, I just love how the scene opens, how he sort of, he knocks and he comes into like this little sitting area where she is. And she's shocked that it's him there because like you said earlier, she's kind of expecting maybe it's Colonel Fitzwilliam. And he immediately asks, you know, how are you? Are you feeling better? And she says, like, yeah, I'm fine. He sits down (laughs) and she's, like, waiting for him to say something. He gets up, walks around the room. And she, I just love imagining her sitting there like, what the hell is going on? And he is, like, super nervous. And then he just sort of, like, it tumbles out of him. In vain, I have struggled. It will not do. And I just, I, again, it's theatrical. It's cinematic. It's no wonder that this scene is so perfectly done on stage and in movies because it's just so great. I I love it so much. I love after his, his profession, Elizabeth was completely silent and this he considered sufficient encouragement. <laughs> because he is nervous, but he has no doubt that she's going to say yes. I mean, who who would say no to him? Who would say no to Pemberley? Exactly. 
she hasn't seen Pemberley yet. So we will definitely talk about that, of course. But um, yeah, I, I think that this this scene is so, so fantastic. I love the back and forth. We we should say that, of course, the the huge reason that she's saying no is because she has just learned that it was Mr. Darcy who separated Jane and Bingley. And you kind of have to wonder, like, if she didn't know that, would she have been like, well, I don't know, could do worse. Right. Um, but because she loves her sister so much and, and you know, she's so, so prideful, I, I, I think it also says a lot about Mr. Darcy that he was like, Bingley, you can't handle this family. Do not marry into them. They will drag you down. But he's willing to do it for Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. I I always love that irony. It's mm-hmm. And it's just maybe telling how his feelings are. And maybe it, it really shows that Darcy truly wasn't convinced that Jane loved Bingley back. Yeah. And he really wanted to protect his friend. I think so. And I do. So prior to this scene, Darcy is around Elizabeth a few times because, you know, they're in the same place. He's visiting his aunt. And it almost does seem like she's starting to warm up to him a little bit. And so I do think it's, you make a great point about if she didn't know what he did, she might've been like, "Mm, okay, like, yeah, I don't have anything better going on right now. So, yeah. I mean, also, I think it was much more common at this time for people to be like, let me think about it. I will get back to you in a few days, which like, I don't think happens very much anymore. But um, yeah. So the fact that she just outright rejects him is pretty, pretty crazy. I, I also think we just get a lot about Darcy's character in here, too. This is the the scene where he says disguise of every sort is my abhorrence and how mm-hmm. he just he feels like he, you know, can't and shouldn't hide his real feelings, even the the negative ones. And I, I think that's really important to to his character and something that um, often gets lost because he's portrayed as so introverted. Um, but he's very forthright as well. Yeah, he is. He is extremely honest to a fault, especially in this scene. But that's really not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, ultimately, I feel like that will be the foundation of a really good relationship. But, um, you know, the proposal is not the time to tell <laughs> your <No>. beloved <laughs> no, all of the qualms you have about them. I also, I mean, I just love that it all ends in a really fiery fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the sexy part of Jane Austen's novel, right? Like that's that's the sexy part of Pride and Prejudice because they're not going to make out in this book, obviously. But that fight really shows that they have a spark and that there's passion and that these two people like could just really make a great couple. There's a lot of heat in the scene, like um they they grow heated and they get their faces color and yeah so that like sexual tension for sure is there in this fight and and it ends with I mean Darcy leaves and it ends with Elizabeth in tears like she was so emotional here 
and feeling so much um, that that's how that I mean, I think it that is also very telling. Like she's not indifferent to this situation. It brings up a lot in her emotionally. Yeah, and they've known each other for a while at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that she has developed a certain impression of him and, you know, it's clear that he has fallen for her, but I mean, they, they have a little bit of a history by this point. And so for him to approach her alone already speaks to this familiarity is new. And then for them to truly like get in a verbal brawl with each other, that is just it's it's not formal. It's not something that would be done in company. It's not something that they would do if they weren't on some level comfortable with each other. So I just, I love the way it ends. I'm so glad we chose that part to stop at for our first half. <laughs> it's a great cliffhanger. I I love this scene so much. And I this is a great one. If you are reading the book, even just listening to this chapter on audio or reading it aloud to yourself. This is one that we'd read aloud in in my classroom because you pick up on on so much. Um it, it's such a good good scene. I love too how it ends with Elizabeth thinking it was gratifying to have inspired unconsciously so strong an affection. And it is. I mean, she wasn't trying to win over Mr. Darcy. He just fell for her and she in spite of everything feels a little bit of pride in that. And and I think in part, that's the root of what we will see start developing between them in in later chapters and that they're equals and can spar, as you said. I, that is really important to, to this couple. All right, Sarah. We could chat just about Elizabeth and Darcy, I think, for so much longer. And we obviously will when we talk about part two and we bring up a bunch of themes, but we are going to save that for our next Pride and Prejudice episode. And let's share a pick of the week before we leave everyone with that cliffhanger to go and read the rest of Pride and Prejudice. What is your pick of the week? Mine is a book. It is called The Jane Austen Guide to Happily Ever After by Elizabeth Cantor. And this is a really silly book that maybe takes itself a little too seriously, but it's a really fun one if you love Jane Austen. It goes through the novels and kind of suggests like, what does Jane Austen think a good and happy life is? What does she think a good relationship is? And it's sometimes written almost as like a self-help, like to like how to act more like Elizabeth or that that's what makes it silly. But it's really fun to flip through if you like thinking about what makes each of the relationships in Jane Austen's novels good ones, because she depicts a lot of different kinds of relationships. She doesn't necessarily think that there's just one way to have a successful romantic relationship. And, and I, I think that it's fun to think about all of this variety of, of coupling in her in her books and why it works. So. That is the Jane Austen Guide to Happily Ever After. What do you have for us, Chelsea? I would be surprised if many of our listeners hadn't heard of this already, but maybe it's just a good reminder. Or if they haven't, I really hope 
that they will go back and watch the Lizzie Bennett Diaries on YouTube. This is a really fun Pride and Prejudice retelling and every episode of it is on YouTube. I think that the episodes are just a few minutes long each and it's clever. I just think it's really sweet and I think that it's a great way to sort of break up your reading of Pride and Prejudice, especially like we said, we've sort of stopped at this part one. I think it would be really fun to go and watch the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and sort of stop right at the tense part here um, where we left off and see how they updated things. I, like I said, I just think it's really clever, the modern, um, the modern updates that they did. And yeah, I think it's fun. I think if people are approaching this as teachers, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is just such a fantastic way to get students not just invested in the novel in the modern sense, but I think it's just a great way to cement comprehension. Like after you read the scene and then you watch it, I think that's just such a great way to really cement the facts. So I love the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and I think I'm going to have to do a rewatch this month. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to be rewatching a lot of versions <laughs> while we live in Pride and Prejudice this month. All right. Well, this was so fun. I already can't wait to talk about part two with you and to talk a little bit more in depth about some Jane Austen nerdy stuff for our patrons. I know. I'm really excited. We love this book, and obviously there is so much more to discuss. So we will be diving into Pride and Prejudice even more on some Instagram live events and mostly in our Patreon community. In the Novel Pairings Patreon community, you will get access to our class on Jane Austen, bonus episodes on Regency Customs and Austen Adaptations, and a live book club discussion at the end of the month. Go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community and be the first to know about our Instagram live schedules, new Patreon content, and more in our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We can't wait to hear all about your experiences with part one of Pride and Prejudice. Be sure to tag us on Instagram at novelpairingspod. We also love to see when and where you're listening, so tag us in those Instagram stories to keep spreading the word about Novel Pairings Podcast. Be sure to send your bookish friends a link to your favorite episode or get major bonus points from us for writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with a TBR toppling episode pairing highly anticipated spring releases with backlist titles. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.